Hello, and welcome to the Console Kingdom Podcast. My name is Jared. And I'm your co-host, lifelong gamer for over 30 years, and host of the YouTube channel Risky Fitness, Dan. And on today's episode, we are going to start our Final Fantasy retrospective, and we're going to talk about Final Fantasy 1 through 6. But before we get into the Final Fantasy 1 through 6, Dan and I have a little special thing going on. We decided that we were going to pick five separate characters from the original six Final Fantasies and pit them against each other in kind of an arena battle. There are some specific rules. You can only have one white mage, one black mage, one tank or warrior knight, um, physical, basically, and then the other two are going to be your support characters, and they can be any characters from Final Fantasy 1 through 6. Now, Dan, do you want to go ahead and present your characters to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I gave this a lot of thought, and I really wanted to put Jared up against the wall as much as possible here. So with the rules that we had, we made sure we didn't give each other like status ailments and, you know, just kind of basic equipment so that we weren't basically destroying each other with complicated things. So here's what I put together just based on that. So for my main sort of like tank character, I chose Celes from Final Fantasy VI. She has heavy armor. She uses a shield. I figured she fits that rule. Now, we also had a rule that we can have our Final Fantasy VI characters could have one Esper but no magic spells. And we did that, of course, just to keep things from getting too complicated and to not have like a whole team of magic users. So to that end, I gave her Shote or Catoblepis, depending on which version of the game you're playing. And that is the Esper that uh, if you summon it, will turn all your opponents to stone. Now, I chose that one not realizing we weren't doing status ailments. So it's actually kind of useless in this case. But I decided to stick with it and I'm going to tell you why. The reason I have Celes in the party is because of her runic ability. Now, Jared, I'm sure you are well aware of what runic does, correct? Absolutely. Runic is one of those things that nullifies any magic attacks cast against your party. Right. So I'm going to have Celes using runic on every single turn. The way that this is going to work is anytime someone tries to cast a magic spell, it is going to be absorbed by Celes. So now for the next slot, I put in just for a white mage, because we have one slot for a white mage, I chose uh, just the, uh, a generic white wizard from Final Fantasy 1 or 5. I guess they're kind of interchangeable, really, in this particular case. Uh, but for this case, I really would rather choose 5 because you have spells like Protect and Shell and so forth. Now, obviously, those aren't going to come into play here, but I wanted to have him just as a backup. Because if Jared does find some way to defeat my Seelies, then I am going to want to be able to use magic. And of course, we also have a Black Mage slot. And for that, I chose the equivalent, the Black Mage or Black Wizard, whichever you want to call from Final Fantasy V, for similar reasons. Just really good magic output and damage. And of course, with Seelies using Runic every turn, I will have an opportunity to utilize that character unless Jared finds a way to defeat my Seelies. So with that all out of the way, we have two more slots left that we were uh, able to fill, and those are two kind of support slots. And we agreed ahead of time, this could be any character that is not a heavy character like a tank, or specifically a black or white mage. So think thief, monk, any kind of like light damage class, or anyone with like a support ability like blue magic 
for example. So I chose in support slot one Strago uh, from Final Fantasy VI, and I'm giving him the Esper Golem. And the reason I'm doing that is because I've already nullified magic by having Seelies use Runic on every single turn. Now, Strago will be summoning Golem to nullify any and all physical damage that Jared's party might do. So now, no one can use magic in this battle because Seelies is going to suck it up every time, but... Also, Jared's party cannot use physical damage to attack me. So I've got those two things completely taken care of. So now you might ask the question, Jared, if I have nothing to damage you with at this point, how am I going to damage you? You can't damage me, so you're probably wondering, how am I going to damage you, right? Yes, absolutely. And for that, we have support slot two, which I chose the most broken character in the history of Final Fantasy, the Monk from Final Fantasy 1. If you're not aware, the Monk from Final Fantasy 1 is brokenly overpowered, mainly because they programmed him wrong and he hits way harder than he's supposed to. So his melee damage is going to just beat the heck out of whoever Jared picks. So there we go. I've got Celes using Runic to make it impossible for anybody to cast magic. I have my mages in there just for backup. I have Strago using Golem to nullify physical damage. And I have the Monk from FF1 to just beat up Jared's guys. Now, the only weakness I could find in this party is that Golem does not last forever. So let's hear what Jared's party is and see what kind of damage I can expect Jared's party to do to my guys and see if they can get through Golem's earthen wall. Go ahead, Jared. All right, so I started out choosing for my tank character as the Knight uh, from Final Fantasy 1. The reason I did this is because there's certain armors, especially later in the game, that pretty much essentially drops any damage done to him to, like, one. And if it's not one, it's not very massive. That might um, be a problem could for be my monk. 50, 60, so, I think, things like that. I chose for my white mage, I chose the white wizard from Final Fantasy 1 because I feel like there are spells like Hilaga and Hilara, depending on what version you play, um, that could really, really... Uh, you, my party could use healing, so I, I really enjoyed that healing aspect. Now, for my black mage, I chose Tella from Final Fantasy IV. Right. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I just had a complete brain fart for a minute. I apologize. Uh, so I chose Tella from Final Fantasy IV because, in a sense, he was like a Sith from Star Wars, where he his anger increased his magic abilities and he remembered and learned uh, all that now it wasn't one of those perma stat increases as you know like a a um, permanent uh limit break where it's like use anger and your magic goes through the roof no but he had some very fine magic spells early on in the game um, and I really wanted to use him as my black mage. Now, for my my um, kind of summoner, kind of 
uh, support class, I was going to use Sealy's as well. And the reason I decided to go with that is um, because I kind of saw her as a summoner. However, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that she was kind of a tank class. So I decided that instead of Sealy's, because that would have been breaking the rules, I'm calling myself out on that one, um, I decided to go with a summoner class of Rydia from Final Fantasy IV. Good choice. She has some incredible summons. She has some very incredible summons and actually some kind of wacky ones towards the end of the game that you can get. Um, But, you know, if I'm only allowed to use one summon, that summon will be Bahamut and cast Mega Flare. I feel like Mega Flare is non-elemental damage and it's extremely powerful. Yeah. Then for my final support character, I decided to go with Kane as a Dragoon class. More specifically, I guess, just because I liked him as a character, I kind of saw him as a misunderstood... He was used by, say, the uh, the evil within, the dark uh, evil... He was used, he was, they brought it out in him, but he really was a good guy. He was a brother, he was like a brother to, to Cecil. And the way that I had anticipated or planned on getting around Dan's Gollum is to use Jump. And... It's really one of those things that could be hit or miss, because as you know, jump isn't always, your character is not always off screen. So you got a 50-50 shot of being away from any attacks or any summons that may affect him, or it may hit you completely. But I thought it's worth the risk. It is a solid, solid move to have, and Kane is a very very fun character to play with so that would be my team and so here that we have described our teams here i apologize now that we have described our teams what we would like you the audience to do is to hop on our social medias and tell us who you think would win this fight who do you think would win in this 1v1 arena 5-on-5 battle. And you can use the hashtag Team Jared, Team Dan. You can uh, contact us on Facebook and give us reasons why um, that you feel like they would win. And just connect with us and let us know, you know. Um, Because honestly, in this instance, I cannot call a winner one way or the other because there's so many possibilities of ifs so i would like the listeners to vote and on a future episode we will reveal those results yeah and you know something else uh, jared before we move forward something else to consider before you guys vote remember i have strago the blue mage in my party i can cast mighty guard and white yes so don't forget about those 
Mighty Guard and White Wind are a huge benefit to you. And that's kind of what makes me a little nervous. However, I feel that my party can outwit, outlast, outplay, and be a survivor. <clears throat> but anyway, so I wanted to start our conversation today about Final Fantasy with the one place we absolutely to start, right? We absolutely have to start with Final Fantasy 1. That game has just been such a huge part of my childhood, and I am positive it's been a huge part of Dan's childhood. But, but folks, I really want Dan to explain to you guys something very interesting that I had learned from Dan himself that the final in Final Fantasy wasn't quite what you expect it to be. Dan, would you like to go ahead and explain to our listeners just exactly why Final Fantasy wasn't final? Yeah, absolutely, Jared. It's funny. It's like they had that ad a while back. Uh, I don't remember if you. I don't know if you remember this one. The fantasy is never final, right? One of the games. Some yes. of the games had that that little tagline, and um, and that's absolutely true. I mean, hey, look, it's thirty years later, and we're still talking about this first game, and the impact that it had on us. But the big thing about this game that a lot of people misunderstand is the actual legend behind how it got its name. So I'm sure, Jared, that you know, you know, the prevailing myth that's out there, right? So for those of you who may not have heard this, yeah, for those of you who may not have heard this, uh, the story that they said is, you know, that Square was going out of business and they had this one last kind of Hail Mary play to create the game that was going to save the company. And that game was Final Fantasy and they called it Final Fantasy because it was their last chance. Um, and that's not true at all. It's actually an urban legend. And I'm going to tell you the real story of what actually happened. And now before you all start attacking me on social media, this is coming straight from Hironobu Sakaguchi himself. So if you have a problem with this story, go talk to him about it, not me. I'm just the messenger here. <laughs> so here's a quote from Sakaguchi himself kind of explaining it. There's an urban legend that the final in Final Fantasy meant that this was our last project. While we were having some hard times back then, the truth is that as long as the title could be shortened to FF, any word would have sufficed. It was initially going to be Fighting Fantasy, but there was already a board game out with the same name. So Jared, that's coming from uh, Sakaguchi himself. So would you say hearing that, you understand that that is in fact an urban legend and not true at all? In fact, you know, I was going to say this. This is one of those things that I grew up, you know, uh, I grew up listening to, you know, just getting little bits and pieces of facts from here and there. Um, And especially during the early 90s, when you were on the playground, you know how how kids talk to each other and things like that. Well, my dad beat Contra with no continues or my dad beat Contra with no lives or, you know, things like that. Um, There was always, yes, exactly. And there was always that rumor that final fantasy was called that because it was 
their final attempt at a game. Now, grow and and I'm I just turned 36 about a couple weeks ago, and I have to say, without Dan, I would have never known the truth behind this, mainly because I just didn't look it up because I didn't think about it. But when Dan told me that, I was like, man. Are you serious? And then I kind of looked into what Sakaguchi said himself, and it was like, whoa, whoa, that's yeah. that's it. Yeah, and you know, this old kind of legend, this old kind of myth, it's been repeated so much by content creators, by YouTubers, by game journalists, that it's become almost like part of the cultural zeitgeist surrounding Final Fantasy, and everyone just kind of accepts it as true. But the reality is, that uh, for Sakaguchi, this was a project that he really wanted to try to do, and he was actually considering quitting the business. So Square wasn't going out of business, but Sakaguchi was considering quitting the business of video games and going back to college. Uh, just because he felt like he wasn't really happy uh, making the games he was making. So this was the game he wanted to make, kind of his pet project. And the higher ups at Square didn't even really want him to make it. They didn't see the value in a role-playing game. And I think that's really funny when you think about it today, Jared, because obviously there was a tremendous amount of value, not just in the role-playing game, but in Sakaguchi's ideas. And uh, Jared, did you know what the biggest inspirations behind the original Final Fantasy were? It, it, the two biggest inspirations, do you know what they were? I believe it was Dungeons and & Dragons um, and tabletop yes. dice games. Kind of. I mean, those, those are kind of the same thing. I was thinking... Dungeons and Dragons and other tabletop games similar to that, because I didn't know this until recently, but they actually were massively popular uh, in Japan at one point. But also the Ultima series, because the Ultima series was kind of the precursor to the uh, the console RPGs as we know them today. And I mean, there were some sort of CRPGs back then, very crude, very rudimentary. And I think Ultima was probably the series that was the most um, advanced of all of them. Now, I haven't really played the old Ultima games, but uh, I played a little bit of one and I was bored to tears, but that's by kind of today's standards. Back then, they were very, uh, very, very popular. And, and now, Jared, how would we know today, if we look at the Final Fantasy franchise, how would we as gamers know and understand that Ultima was a huge influence on the Final Fantasy series? You know, I'm glad that you brought that up, honestly, because I wanted to say absolutely i wanted to say this that you can tell that ultima was a huge huge influence in the final fantasy universe because you got things like ultima weapon the magic spell ultima yeah, the magic spell, it, right? it, it, it is the essential nod tip of the cap whatever you want to call it to that series it is sakaguchi absolutely. saying hey this is what I loved. This is the game I love to play. And this is something that inspired me to make Final Fantasy. And for the listeners, there's something I want, to, I want you guys to take a look at if you have the opportunity. You can throw this right up in your Google machine. There was actually a graphic novelization of Ultima 3 Exodus. And I want you to take a look at that graphic novelization and see the design of the enemy Exodus... And then I want you to look at the design of the final boss in Final Fantasy V in his final form, whose name is apparently X-Death. But if you were to transliterate that 
into Japanese characters, it might sound something a bit like exodesu. Exodus, exodesu. And then look side by side at the graphic novel and then look at the, the game. And you're going to see a very, very clear inspiration. I know, Jared, I told you I wasn't going to have any more surprises in terms of trivia, but that's one that I just recently learned, and that kind of blew my mind. So you know, I... I in your Google box as well. I absolutely love it when you kind of catch me off guard with that, because honestly, I did not know that. And I'm sitting here thinking, whoa, you learn something every day. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so for that that whole story, I mean, I think the reason why the whole original story gets so blown out of proportion is because Nobu Ematsu did say that they were having some hard times back in the beginning. So I think it just kind of got taken out of context. I mean, they definitely were having some hard times in the beginning. Uh, it was a small company, you know, and they had kind of like a few minor hits on like Japanese computers like the MSX. And I think the biggest game they put out prior to Final Fantasy was probably Rad Racer. <laughs> so I was, played that in the of, arcade. You know, I played Rad Racer in the arcade. Rad I Racer think, was wait, fun. <laughs> hold on a minute now. I, I may be mistaken because there were two games that I played. You might that, be thinking about Outrun. No, no, it not was, Outrun. Uh, Outrun. It was, it was a game where you drive a car and you had you could you had a plane that would drop upgrades to you and you had guns and you'd shoot the other cars and they would turn into orbs that you could replenish your fuel with. And one of the funniest. Are you thinking of Spy Hunter? No, and one of the funniest upgrades. City Connection. I remember. It had like different stages that you could select from the very beginning with the steering wheel. And then you'd go to that stage um, and they'd have different backgrounds and stuff. And the funniest, one of the funniest upgrades was the nuclear bomb that would turn you invincible and you could just drive through whatever you wanted. However, it was again one of those games that if you took one tiny little bit of damage you blew up immediately um so you know I've, I've i've played just about every game under the sun and i'm stumped on this one so for our listeners if anyone knows what game jared is talking about let us know because now i want to play it <laughs> yeah i remember it being at chuck e cheese and i played it at chuck e cheese nice. and then it also had a port on the nes it was ported to the NES. Now, I remember, I think Rad Racer was the one where you selected, like, either the Corvette or a different car, and you had to, it was kind of like a cross-country track, and you had certain stages, and to get through the stages, you had to beat a certain time before running out of fuel. Well, Rad Racer was only on the NES, so it was never in arcades, but it was kind of like, it was kind of like an unofficial port of OutRun, almost. Like, they were trying to copy Sega's OutRun. So they made okay. Rad Racer. So it's kind of like the it's kind of like the Wish.com outrun. And that kind of brings me to like my next point though, because we're talking obviously, we're getting a little a little on a tangent here, and I think that's okay. I think that can be a lot of fun. But I want to bring it back around to Final Fantasy again, because that reminds me, uh, the person, the one person, one single individual who programmed all of Rad Racer also programmed all of Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy. Yeah. I put my finger up there for a moment because I just remembered the game's name. It's called Road Blaster, by the way. Road Blaster. Sounds like a blast. (laughs) 
anyway, back to Final Fantasy. Yeah, actually, and I thought that was so cool. Um, you know, and and once we get further on into the series, uh, you know, talking about like maybe six and five and the localizations and the translations and things like that, you know, it's so interesting to me that they had one person doing certain aspects of these games. And way, you know, I was going to circle back real fast to Final Fantasy 1, and that is why a lot of the weapons and magic spells in that game just simply do not work, because you had one it's programmer. Crazy. And so suppose you got a worm killer in, uh, I think it's the Temple of Chaos, or maybe right directly after that, and it says effective against giant worms or things like that and dragons. it just gave dragons okay yeah and it gave you it gave you better attack but it wasn't specific to that simple enemy that single enemy and there were certain spells that simply just didn't work they didn't do anything <laughs> several spells didn't do anything and when you look and at that game jared too you only have like a total of like 16 inventory slots for weapons, a total of six, including what you currently have equipped, 16 slots total for weapons, 16 slots total for all your armor and accessories. And then you only had three slots per level per spells. So if you're hanging onto these swords for the whole game, or if you go and buy some of these spells that don't do anything, you're wasting some pretty precious real estate there. And they just released the game like this. And, and that's one of Yeah, it, it was still a hit. And one of the things that I, you know, you got to think about, and this is one of the points I wanted to make very specifically, that back then, okay, Final Fantasy was released in 1990 or 91. 1990 uh, here, um, I think it was 87 in Japan. 87 in Japan. So unless you had like maybe a Nintendo power or some sort of uh, pre-written guide for the game, you didn't know that these things didn't work. And the, you the bought these, even tell you that. Yeah. And you bought these spells and they didn't work. And you wasted a spot where you could have had a better spell. And I think how interesting, how interesting is it that, you you know, these games back then, they just didn't, it was trial and error. And you, and there was, you know. there was no patching. <laughs> yeah, especially on the no Nintendo. The, I, would, I would think with the Famicom as well, but on the Nintendo you had only limited times where you could save the game. It's not like you could just walk up to a vendor, save your game, and purchase something, and then find out, oh, wait, that doesn't work, so I can reload my save. It didn't work like that. One, one save slot, one save slot, and you had to go to an inn or use a tent or a cabin to save. Oh, was it a can cottage? A or, or, or cottage. So what a massive quality of life improvement, you know, being able to save from the menu was. That blew my mind when I played Final Fantasy 2. We called it here on SNES. Blew my mind. And we were talking a little bit about the strategy, guys. I wanted to show you, Jared. I know the viewers can't see because they're not seeing the video here. But I actually have right here the Nintendo Power Strategy Guide for Final Fantasy. Uh, this is not my original. My original is long gone. 
but I used to bring this. I used to bring this thing to school every day, and I would be reading it at lunchtime. Um, sometimes I would be reading it not at lunchtime, <laughs> or you know, I I would be reading that thing every day. I I loved I loved Final Fantasy so much. The original the original one for NES, and I know a lot of our listeners probably, depending on the age range out there, have never played the original NES version. They've probably played the, the GBA or the PS One or the, the Pixel Remaster. But Jared, you've played the original NES version, yes? I certainly have. And I will tell you What a that chore. <laughs> I will tell you that man was that a slog sometimes. You you know, I mean, if you want to talk about moments that you're sitting there tense and like you're you're really tense, like butt cheek squeezing tense as you're down to like very low HP and you're trying to get out of a dungeon and and you're hoping just by some miracle that you make it out of this dungeon alive. It it was one of those games that just made you love and hate it at the same time. Yeah, and the dungeons were so hard too. They were so hard. And I remember like it was so hard to grind up enough money to buy enough potions to survive. And then even if you did max out your potions, you'd still use them all. Like trying to get out of the marsh cave or the the, the Gulag volcano or the whatever the volcano is called. Uh, it's just incredibly, ridiculously hard. Not to mention, with the Nintendo, you never knew when you were going to get the blinky blue and black screen of death. Yes. And, like, you'd be with your controller white-knuckled, hoping that your game doesn't freeze up, because if your game freezes up, you're going to lose the last two, three, four hours of progress since you last saved. And you remember the the Marsh Cave was very good at poisoning you. And that is oh, almost worst. a death sentence. It was the worst. They, those those status ailments used to be such a much bigger part of these games. And as as the series progressed, they sort of tapered off with that a little bit. But it definitely was pretty major, especially back there in the beginning. Uh, but you know what? I, I wanted to um, talk really quickly, Jared, about what is the plot of this game? Like, can you explain the story of this game? In a very simple and basic way, four warriors appear holding crystals. They are the warriors of light. They have come to purify the land from the darkness that Garland, who we find out later is Chaos, has uh, brought to the land. And the warriors of light had been foretold by a prophet or something uh, in the past that they would arrive and they would save the lands from everything bad and, and monsters and evil and things like that. And so they, they show up in Cornelia, they arrive, they speak to the king, they have a test to rescue Princess Sarah, and you have yourself a video game. But what's interesting... Okay. I was going to say, what's interesting, though, is that trying to remember if there was even that much story in the original, 
Because it's been years since I played the original NES version. And actually, most recently, I played through the PSP version and also the uh, Game Boy Advance version, as well as the Pixel remaster. So a lot of those, they had more uh, scenes and stories and things like that along with it. I Trying to remember if they had that much uh, exposition to the story in the original or not. Dan was, would probably know better than I the did. Same. It's about the same. And I had a quick piece of trivia I wanted to mention there. So Final Fantasy 1 and 2 were both released in their kind of upgraded form, what we remember from the PlayStation and the GBA, and probably a few other ports too by now. Uh, that was originally on the Wonderswan Color, which was a handheld console created by Bandai. 1 and 2 both got these remakes on the wonder swan color that all of our subsequent sort of remakes were based on uh final fantasy 3 in japan did not get that remake which is why we didn't see that game until much much later so that's just a really quick piece of trivia but i wanted to ask another question about the story jared where did the light warriors come from you see (laughs) i knew you were going to ask me this question and i've been rack i've been racking my brain and, and and they just appear as out of nowhere they just kind of show up they just show up and well yeah and it's always been a bit confusing as to where they appear from for me but most you travel the whole uh, world you never visit their hometown it through some of the artwork that i've used guides for and things like that it seemed like they were from a completely different realm altogether because one of the artwork uh, that I had had the knight or I guess it's warrior at that point in the game. It had an artwork of him battling a dragon and in Final Fantasy 1 you meet a dragon but it wasn't one of the legendary four fiends so where does that even come from i mean i was thinking about this pretty recently uh and i think i kind of came up with what i think is the answer it's kind of my own headcanon and uh for you guys listening you can tell me what you think about this i think that those characters are just supposed to be the avatar for the player and that really you the player are the hero of the original final fantasy and you're fighting against the literal embodiment of the abstract idea of chaos. And your job is to restore balance to the world by defeating chaos. So I kind of feel like, you know, the player is the avatar for order in this world. Um, or rather, the player is the hero of order. And these characters, these warriors of light, these are your sort of, your sort of uh, mystical avatar that's conjured into the world to represent you. At least that's my thought. And I tend to agree with you just based on how the game ends. Um, At least Pixel Remaster and I know uh, the GBA and PSP versions had said this. During the ending text, it said something about you are the warrior. You are the, you know, uh, you are the light or something like that. And to me when Dan had told me his headcanon, I kind of subscribed to that notion because based on how the game ended, 
it, with the text, it really made me feel like that's pretty close to being accurate. I'm glad that, I'm glad that you uh, that you kind of felt the same way with it because then later on, like as we move on in the series, and I know for a lot of us, I guess it really depends on on your own experience. I played all of these games uh, on the original uh, Famicom through emulators with fan translations. So two and three, long before they were ever released here, I I played them, uh, but I don't know if a lot of our listeners have had that experience because not everybody is an obsessive weirdo like me. So, you know, I was obsessed with Final Fantasy, and I had to find these games. I had to play them. So, circle like figure like 1998, 99, 2000, the early days back in the nesticle days. You know, uh, I was playing Final Fantasy two and three with translations. And the storyline and the storytelling became tremendously improved in just that short time. Now, uh, Jared, I'm not sure about your familiarity with Final Fantasy II, the Famicom one, because I want to make the quick distinction here. When we're talking about these games, we're going to be talking about them using the canonical numbers, right, Jared? Absolutely. And um, I will say this. I did decide to go and watch the original Final Fantasy 2, and I'm not sure if it was a fan translation or whatever, but I found an LPR that did do the original Final Fantasy 2 on the Famicom or NES, however he emulated it. And it was the original game, and uh, so I did get a chance to see Final Fantasy 2. Then it would have to be a fan translation. But not play it. it. there was no official translation released until those Wonderswan colors were translated for the GBA and so on. But that Final Fantasy II, there was, uh, for a very brief period of time, a prototype that was released in the U.S. called the Final Fantasy II. I think it was like Dark Skies Over Palakia was the subtitle, but it was never completed. And Jared, do you know the reason why that was never completed? You know, you're getting into a realm that I just don't have a clue well it's good it's a good thing you have me the mega uh history and trivia nerd of final fantasy to help you out with that question jared so so for final fantasy 2 the main reason it wasn't released and and we'll we'll play a little quick guessing game here about the main reason why it wasn't released so jared if you had never spoken to me about this before and you didn't have the obsessive weirdo trivia nerd here to give you this information. What would be your best educated guess as to why Final Fantasy II was not released in the U.S.? Until much later. Is that they didn't have a person that could localize and translate the game for uh, North America would be my guess. I mean, that's, that's one pretty good guess. But then again, they had the almighty Ted Woolsey, who I'm sure we'll be talking about quite a bit more as we go on uh, with this conversation. Uh, but the main reason I thought for a long time was that the original Final Fantasy, uh, being an RPG, was kind of a niche genre. And RPGs, if you remember, you know, back in the day, they weren't really like the biggest, most popular type of genre. If you remember, you talked earlier, Darren, about like being on the playground and what kids were talking about. What games were they talking about? Were they talking about Dragon Warrior and Final Fantasy? No, they were talking Absolutely about... Absolutely not. Mario, Mario, Mega Man, Metroid, 
um, yeah, Contra, things like that. Yeah, so my thought was it probably just the first one probably just didn't sell well enough here for Square to want to make the investment to localize it. But I did a little bit more digging and a little bit more research, and uh, I found out that, and this is a, a fact that's going to, I think, blow a lot of people's minds, the original Final Fantasy on the NES actually sold better here in North America than it did in Japan. It was actually more popular here than it was over there. So then you have to kind of ask the question again, so why on earth did they not bring this game over? And uh, you were kind of leaning in the right direction, saying they didn't have someone to localize it, because they did. But that process used to take a long, long time and be done in pieces. Because this was, remember, this was before the internet. There was no email. There was no forum. There was no, like, you couldn't very quickly do this sort of work. You couldn't assemble an international team of people to work together and collaborate. You had one guy, that was Ted Woolsey, communicating with the home office back in Japan via snail mail and getting pages of the script sent to him via the mail, which he would then translate and localize and then mail back. Um, and then not only that, but then there was the technical aspect of it where then they had to take these cartridges, these Nintendo cartridges that only had like maybe uh, 256 kilobytes of storage memory on them and take all this data and convert it. Uh, and those limitations, Jared, I'm sure you remember like in the original Final Fantasy, how many how many letters could you have in a character name? Do you remember? Uh, it wasn't much. Not off the top of my head. I can't remember how many. But I don't think it was more than seven. Four. Four letters okay. in your character name. Because the Nintendo cartridges, especially back then, only had a very small amount of room for data. And uh, doing these localizations, these translations, they would have to have enough room on that cartridge to put the new data in and remove the old data. It was a very tedious process. It took a very long time. It was very technically demanding for the time. And the original Final Fantasy, like we discussed earlier, that was released in Japan in 1987. We didn't see it until 1990. So given that, think about the time frame, right? So Final Fantasy II was released in December of 1988 in Japan. So if we're going through that same localization process with now a game with a much more developed story and a lot more text, use your imagination, Jared, and you tell me why do you think, with all the information we have now, why do you think, and, and the listener also, before Jared guesses, you guys take a guess too, why do you think that it took that that it took years and years before we saw Final Fantasy II here in the U.S. Giving the listeners a moment there, the answer to that, in my opinion, now will be that they just were too late. They didn't have time before the Super Nintendo was released, and that is the million-dollar answer. They just didn't have time. The Super Nintendo was released in the U.S. Uh, in I think late 91, right? By the time this game was localized, yeah. the Super Nintendo would have already been out. And Nintendo didn't want to keep releasing more games for the NES. They were trying to phase it out and move everybody over to their new console, keep their business running and make more money. So it, it was just it was really just a timing issue. 
Now, I haven't played that that Dark Skies over Palakia. I don't know if there's any, you know, ROM image available of that or anything, because it was a project that was never completed. But uh, there are tons of, if anybody wants to play it, there are tons of fan translations. Uh, the one I think I played most recently was Chaos Rush, which was really, really good, of Final Fantasy II. And um, that game is brutal, more brutal than Final Fantasy I ever was. It had the system where you had to beat the heck out of your own people in order to level them up. It was the only way. Uh, you couldn't just, like, fight and level up normally. You would have to have your guys beat each other up to get stronger. It was the only way you could do it. Really hard game. Brutally difficult on the original Famicom. And you said you watched a playthrough of it, but you haven't played it yourself, right, Jared? I have not. Um, and it was that exact reason why. It was one of those reasons where I just looked at how the, the character um, stats increased and I thought to myself, how is this fun? I, I just, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't get into it by just canceling attacks and taking damage and using magics. And it just didn't do it for me. I, I don't think anyone could really blame you for that. In fact, Final Fantasy II was such a massive hit that the entire team that made it was moved off to a different project. <laughs> and created the saga series so you know of course i'm saying that tongue-in-cheek because it was not well received and uh i i think sakaguchi basically said this is not my vision for final fantasy and you guys can go work on your vision i'm gonna come back here and we're gonna work on my vision with my game final fantasy uh you know because at this point sakaguchi was still in charge of final fantasy now uh Jared, before we move on, is there anything else you wanted to talk about uh, with regards to Final Fantasy II? Uh, it is the first time we saw Chocobos in a Final Fantasy game. It's the first time we saw an airship captain named Sid in a Final Fantasy game. Um, and I don't think I have anything else. Dragoons? It's the first time we saw Dragoons in Final Fantasy. So a lot of firsts in this one. But the Dragoons we saw in this game uh, were not the same as the Dragoons we later became familiar with. It was just kind of basically a knight. Uh, but, you know, they happen to be associated with dragons. That's really all, about all it is. Oh, well, here, Jared. Yeah, and... Actually, oh, I have go a, ahead. I have another question for you. Do you know what a Dragoon is? A cool word? Is it a cool word? It's like it's dra it's dragon, but then it's goon. Like it's it's a goon of a like goon is a goofy word. I don't. I wouldn't say that's cool. It sounds cool, and you have like cane. Like cane's super cool, but um, a dragoon is a real thing. There actually is a, a thing called a dragoon. Um, it's a historical term, and it was for a horse-mounted infantryman. And this is like in in Great Britain and England. It's like circa like late 18th, early 19th centuries. Uh, and I don't really understand what a horse-mounted infantryman would be because infantry means on foot, but then people on horses or cavalry. So I'm not really exactly sure what that means. So if you rode a horse, but you weren't cavalry, I guess that would have made you a dragoon. Maybe they jumped. Maybe. Because, I mean, that would be cool. Just if there was an entire battalion of guys who could fly through the air... And just come back the other way. I was always I was always scared when I played yeah. Final Fantasy IV that I would I, that like Kane would be jumping and he wouldn't come back. 
Yeah, for sure. No, you know, I Final Fantasy Two was one of those games that I feel like it broke a lot of not how do I say this? It didn't break records, it didn't break it Oops. broke the mold in the sense of of well yeah, that too. It kind of broke of how we were trained in the first Final Fantasy to level yeah. your characters. Yeah, that's a but good that's what a good I assessment. found what I found really fascinating more so is that it introduced things to the series that to this day are still there just Staples. not yeah, I mean it really it was it's so hard for me to kind of where would I rank that in 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 my list because honestly, I never played the game. I didn't really like the mechanics, but at the same time, as a as a historical piece, you think about what it added to the series, and then realize that it was just as important as Final Fantasy One was, even with its backwards leveling system. And just say, take the normal rules of an RPG, throw them out the window, and just kind of do what it feels like. I mean, I still love the game. Uh... It's it's not it's not my favorite. I still love the game. I have admiration for it because it was so different, and uh, the br- the brutality of it to a degree is almost admirable because it was really a big challenge for the player, but it was also very very broken. And I don't th- I don't think it was put together terribly well. But we have the newer versions, and if you do want to experience this game, uh, but you don't want to play this super tedious painful torturous famicom original version then my recommendation would be to play the pixel remaster that came out recently you can play it on a mobile phone you can play it on any pc pretty much will run it you can run it on the most potato laptop you can find it'll run it plays fine then you can experience the game you can experience the story and get a feel for what it's like in a much more quality of life friendly and not as brutally difficult version (laughs) so that would be my recommendation But moving forward to Final Fantasy 3, one thing I wanted to bring up about 3 was the fact that they added something that has stayed with the series ever since. And that is the job system. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love it. Love the job system. And it was one of those things that to me, it was so cool to see it. You know, I never got a chance to play three, but again, I I did some research and I was able to watch through a playthrough and that kind of stuff. And what really caught my attention was just the different classes and jobs that you could do. Yeah, there's a wide variety, and a lot of them were a lot of fun to play with. I mean, they're much simpler than what we got later on, like in five, because you know, back with the Famicom, it didn't really have the technology to have all these different um, actions that the players could take. You didn't have like the cool stuff like jump or like the build up with the monk. Um, you didn't really have like blue magic. You know, you, it was much more limited in what the characters could do. So you had characters that were different jobs, but like, you know, you had a character whose job was like he was a knight, but he could do white magic. So they kind of mixed things up a little bit. Uh, and of course, you know, they added like archers with the aim command, so that was cool. But that was in two, so it doesn't really count. 
so there were a few uh, a few kind of cool things that you could do. Um, and again, I played I played you know a fan translation, and there's a Chaos Rush uh, translation of that one as well, also very good. That um, but then when we finally got uh, an official localization of this game, I hated it. I hated the official localization. Do you remember uh, the the official release of Final Fantasy three in in the U.S., Jared? I, I do not. Um, that was probably during a time that I wasn't paying as much attention to gaming uh, as I probably should have. So dis- it was so disappointing. It was on the DS, and I had a DS, and I loved the DS. The, the DS was a cool little handheld system. Really loved it. A lot of great games on that thing, and I was really, really psyched for this game in particular. I was very excited to finally be getting a localization, and not just a localization, but one with brand new 3D graphics. Uh, seemed like really, really cool. And my gosh, I hated it. I thought it was awful. I thought it was just terrible. The the character designs are awful. Everything looks wrong. Uh, and just the game is tedious. It's boring. And even like even playing the original Famicom version and, and even the Pixel remaster, I I got bored. I'm just I'm just not a big fan of this one. The story's kind of boring. And I think that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that there's a lot of folks that might be in the same boat as you because I, I just, when I think of Final Fantasy, right, I, I, I don't hear much about 2. I, I don't hear much about 3. Uh, I hear a little bit about 5, um, but that's 5 is for an entirely different reason that we'll get to shortly. But you think the 3 we got in North America... Right, so you got Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy Two, which was actually Final Fantasy Four, and Final Fantasy Three, which was actually Final Fantasy Six. Not to confuse anybody, but those are the three that I hear the most about. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there's definitely good reason for that. This one in particular, it was just I've played through it a few times. I've never been a huge fan of it. Uh, there was never a Wonderswan Color version of Final Fantasy III like there were for 1 and 2. And I think the reason behind that was simply that the game was massive. It was a huge game. Uh, it really used every little bit of that cartridge memory for the uh, the Famicom cartridge. And that's something I don't want to get too into those kind of technical details here because I'm a little fuzzy with some of it myself. But it also can get very dry. But basically with the Nintendo cartridges and the Famicom cartridges, you had by default... About, I think, like 256 KB or like four, uh, something like that. Yeah, like 200, like kilo, we're talking kilobytes of space. We're talking about a JPEG, basically, at this point, uh, in terms of how much storage could be on those games. Which, when you think about it, it's kind of remarkable that they could fit entire games, you know, in such a small amount of space, right? Uh, and the largest Nintendo cartridge ever was one megabyte. If you think about like an MP3, and even that, I'm even dating myself saying MP3, but how big was an MP3 for a four-minute song, Jared? Do you remember? It wasn't much larger than one, maybe two megabytes. Uh, yeah, usually around like somewhere between like three and five for the most part. So entire right, games right, you know, okay. that, were, that were smaller than a single you know MP3 file. Uh, and there was no room left. Um, and the way that they would make more space for the Nintendo cartridges is later on in the life cycle, they found ways of adding more memory chips to the actual uh, to the actual cartridge board itself. So they could find a way to like add additional memory chips and then they could like cycle through them, uh, which that's where I get a little bit fuzzy. It had a way where it could take the existing 
memory on the cartridge and could take the data out and put different data in. Um, that That's probably a little bit fuzzy, but basically the long and short of it is that they used the absolute maximum amount of memory space possible for this game on these Nintendo cartridges to the point where to try and make a new version of them or to try to translate them, um, there wasn't enough room on the cartridge to work with what was there. So you, almost if you think of like if you have like a Word document and you're trying to edit the document, but you have the maximum number of characters on screen and you have to delete something in order to write something else how difficult that would be to work with it was kind of, it was kind of like that in order to create to in order, in order to add or change anything you have to like delete or remove something else so very difficult to work with and i think part of the reason why they never bothered to make a 16 bit version for the wonders one is just cuz it was just like the least popular one but also it would just, it would have been a lot of work <laughs> and probably just not worth it and now we are turning things a bit super as we move on to the Super Nintendo. And let me tell you, one of my favorite Final Fantasy games of all time. Final all Fantasy IV. All, all time. Easy. Final Fantasy IV was one of those games that touched my heart in so many different ways. The storytelling. And, and, and let's just take a break here and talk about that for a moment. Because... Final Fantasy IV brought to the table a much better exposition of the characters to talk about their backstories a little bit, not a whole lot, but to give us more insight into who they are and just yeah, so... Them. It, it, it was something. It really was something. Going from Final Fantasy I to Final Fantasy II. And you really really were treated with something incredibly special and it, yeah. it, it it's amazing it's amazing well this was mind-blowing jared too going from that original nes game we were talking about at the beginning of the show without the stepping stones of two and three which at the time we didn't know existed um, and going exactly. straight to this because it makes more sense in the context when you look at two and three and sort of see how things came together. You kind of look at the quality of life improvements that took track, you know, up to that point. Three started with the numbers popping out of the enemies instead of these slow dialogue boxes that took forever to load. You know, you had the blue background windows in three, but here it was totally new. Uh, and if you look back at three and you compare some of the things to four assets and things like that, you can see a lot of similarities. But we didn't have those sort of, you know, jumping off points. We just went straight from one to four. And that was an absolutely mind-blowing experience for me just because of the massive change and the depth of that game compared to the original. Um, and this, of course, again, was at a time when RPGs weren't really all that popular, so I hadn't played that many of them. And this was such a massive leap forward in so many ways. So, uh, Oh, yes. Getting to know the characters, getting to know the characters, um, there's so much more that they could tell us now. Because I talked a little bit before about the limitations of those NES cartridges. Now with the Super Nintendo, we have much more storage space to work with. Uh, I think about like about two megabytes was pretty typical for for a uh, Super Nintendo cartridge, which meant a lot more on-screen text. So we're reading a lot more, which I think was good for us as kids, right? That's probably the thing I read more than anything else when I was a kid. <laughs> was was Final Fantasy text. 
about eight times. I'm sorry, I was just doing the math in my head. Right around eight times larger uh, memory space than what you had for an NES game. Much more detailed characters, much more vivid, detailed backgrounds, massive graphical improvements, uh, more channels for the music. The Super Nintendo had an incredible audio chip. And the music, I mean, the music was always brilliant, Jared, but how much better did the music get? Like when you first started playing Final Fantasy 2, we called it then, right? But now we know it's 4. When you first started playing Final Fantasy 4 and you hear that... The Red Wings theme. Uh, that was... I don't think I'd ever heard any game music, anything like that. That was like a full orchestral soundtrack compressed into MIDI. And it was amazing. It still is amazing. It was... That's yeah, still, I mean, Yuimatsu, Yuimatsu is, is a genius. I mean, Uimatsu there's is no two ways... Genius. Absolute genius. There's no two ways about it. Yes. Absolutely. One of the best to ever do it. Um, And I will say, one of the things that really caught my attention about 4, besides the music, besides these beautiful scenes and graphics and storytelling, was that it really caught my attention how they used cutaways in certain mm -hmm. points where it would show Golbez making a plot with Kane at the time right to you know to do whatever it was they were doing trying not to spoil too much if you've never played it before but Meanwhile. you know they they use cutaways and I thought to myself wait a minute how incredible is this going from a Nintendo game to cutaways it, it just it, yeah I, I the words I think <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that's something that's going to become more important as we talk about the Final Fantasy franchise as a whole because that's kind of the cinematic storytelling elements that they were bringing in already in the 16-bit era. And I think we don't recognize those as much because we didn't get quite there to the point of what the CD era brought us with the full motion video and things like that. But there is a lot more of uh, almost Hollywood-style production values kind of eking their way in as much as could be you know, on a 16-bit console. Obviously, you couldn't have full movie sequences, but the amount of animation that was on screen, the longer storytelling sequences with lots of exposition, it was kind of leaning that way. Uh, and I think, Jared, in this one, would you say that there's a lot more movement overall, like in the overworld and during the storyline sequences? It felt like it a lot. And can we just take a moment and, and talk about Sir Tedley Wolsey? I know I'm kind of butchering his name on purpose because, you know, Ted. Sorry, we can call him Tedley. Let's talk about Tedley. <laughs> yeah. You know, as I as I kind of referenced at the very beginning, Spoonie Bard. It, Spoonie it was Bard, just something. One of the immortal lines. Immortal it, it line. really was. And total it nonsense. absolutely was. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's it's right on par with all our base. All your base are belong to us. You know what from, you're doing. Uh, from Zero Wing. Someone set up <laughs> us the bomb. Someone set us up the bomb. Yeah, you know, and yeah. like, do you do you know Jared? Like, do you know do you know why he chose? Like, I, I, I don't I don't have an answer for this question. This is not this is not one of those things where I'm gonna you know g give you trivia. I'm literally asking you. Do you have any idea why he chose 
you spoony bard for that line the only thing i can think of and i this is something that i want to get into shortly but the only thing that i can think of is if the original japanese had more of a adult themed word there yes yeah and and so he had to come up with something that would fucking just make it yeah just make it past the censors that just fit but quite didn't fit at the same time that is my guess it's definitely not canon but it it was one of those i i want to say yeah it, it was one of those moments where it's like well, I guess I can't use this word because, you know, the, the censorship here in the North America is not going to fly. So let's go with something completely off the wall and uh, say, you spoony bard. I'm, because... I'm going to presume that it was either, yeah, it was either a much more mature insult or if not that, it was like some kind of reference that we wouldn't have understood. Because those are kind of yes. the two big things. Yeah, but thinking about it, you have SB, right? So Spoonie, you could you could take the O in there and instead of, instead of saying USOB, you Spoonie Bard. Oh yeah, maybe. Maybe maybe the original insult was something along those lines and he kind of just freestyled it because again we were talking about Woolsey before a little bit and he had to do a lot of that like he had to do a lot of freestyling because a lot of the times there were either things that Nintendo of America would censor because in, in Japan they were a lot looser about these things and I think at the time their culture overall and I could be I could be overstepping here but I think at the time their culture overall was a little bit more accepting of like more mature content even for content that was directed at kids or younger people uh, it just seems that I don't know if I'm correct about that, but it, it seems that way. And then also there were sometimes like cultural references that wouldn't make any sense to us. So he would kind of try to find some way to make it humorous. Um, and if you played some of the other games that were localized that weren't done by Woolsey, like other RPGs, they, they do really just dumb stuff. Like there's uh, Lunar, the Silver Star on the Sega CD where they had some, like, cultural references that you'd have to understand, like, early 90s Japanese pop culture to get. So they just, like, changed them to more Western pop culture jokes, and they were just bad. So I, so I guess what I'm driving at here is that Woolsey did a much better job of that <laughs> than, than yeah. others may have done. Yeah, I would agree with that. And one of the things that I was going to bring up, and we'll get to it very shortly, is... Uh, the character translation in five, but I do want to mention something that, uh, that we should bring up that I think is important in this section here. (coughs) Apologies there. Um, is that anything religious seemed to be eliminated from the North America version. Oh yeah. For example, in final fantasy one, it wasn't a church. It was a doctor's office or a clinic. Um, you couldn't yeah. <laughs> cast. You couldn't cast no the. You couldn't cast the holy spell. You had to cast no white. Um, and I think 
you know, I, without getting too deep into that and causing some really crazy stuff, um, it was just one of those things that Nintendo did, in my opinion, that seemed a bit baffling uh, to me. It was weird. Um, but Woolsey had to follow because if he wanted it localized, he had to get past the censorship. Yeah, it was a little bit weird, and I think part of it was just Nintendo of America, for the most part, you know, they wanted to be family-friendly, and I think they wanted to be, like, very inclusive. So you didn't want to do anything that would be controversial or make anyone feel like they weren't included. You know, you wouldn't want, like, a Jewish kid to play your game and think, oh, this isn't for me because it's full of, you know, it's full of references to Christianity. Uh, so I think that was probably more the idea. They'd rather keep those references out. And you had to deal with, like, parent groups and stuff like that. Like, you couldn't have characters in a video game that was going to be sold to children drinking alcohol because that would be a bad influence. Whereas in Japan, they didn't really have that taboo. So, yeah. And for example, like, I think you've used the example before, the Chrono Trigger example, right? Yeah, I was going to say that uh, in Chrono Trigger where they switched it to soda drinking contest. But also... Um, in some of the other translations that I've played of Final Fantasy IV, it wasn't a bar, quote-unquote. It was a juice bar. I don't think I remember the juice bar reference, and that's pretty funny. Uh, I, I know a lot of times they turn them into cafes. It would say cafe outside instead of inn or instead of tavern or whatever. Uh, and uh, the dancers, I think you talked about this one time before, right? The dancers, if you played like the Super Famicom Japanese version of Final Fantasy IV, uh, like they, she would throw her dress off and you had your little 16 bit pixel, you know, chibi character in a, in a, in a swimsuit basically dancing. But in the U S version, she kept her dress on. Yeah. Yeah. And that was always interesting to me. Jared, have you played, uh, the dragon quest or dragon warrior games at all? That is one series that I wanted to play, but it never got the opportunity this this brings up this running joke uh, from from Dragon Warrior that goes all the way back to the first Dragon Warrior, and I don't know why they did this. Puff, there are references to Puff Puff all the way back, even in the North American version of the original Dragon Warrior. Okay, and it's a joke that runs through the whole series. I'm not going to talk about it on the show because I don't know what kind of rules we're going to have to deal with in terms of our own, you know, uh, you know, censorship or whatever. But basically, uh, you can look it up. Puff Puff is a certain sort of act which involves a man's head and a woman's chest. And that's all I'm going to say. And that's Puff Puff. See, now I was thinking about something completely different as in Puff Puff Pass, but you know. Yeah, that would definitely not make it past uh, past Nintendo of America's censorship. Nintendo of America's censorship. Absolutely not. <laughs> so, despite despite of all that, I mean, we had a lot of other changes too to the localization of the of this game, and I didn't know this until later when I played. You know, the translated Super Famicom version. Of course, later we got some more updated versions, but uh, we got a really easy version of this game. It was super easy. It was dumbed down. The items were dumbed down to like just much, you know, many uh, lesser sorts of items uh so we got a very kind of like simplified and dumbed down version of this game and i want i want because we talked about woolsey we talked about a dumbed down version of final fantasy 4 and the reason i wanted to touch on that is because there was a certain attitude that um 
that Square Enix and I think the Japanese developers as a whole had toward their Western audience. And when we talk about Final Fantasy V in a few minutes, we'll get a lot deeper into that. Um, and I don't want to kind of, I don't want us to like, you know, gloss over four because of the impact that it had, the depth of the characters, the narration, how much we identified with them. Uh, but I do wanted to, before we move on to five and talk about Woolsey and, and the translations and the censorship, I wanted to talk really quickly about the emotional connections that we started to have with these characters at this time. Uh, before that, they were fun games. I enjoyed them. But I think, Jared, you and I can both relate to this and say, I mean, we, we connected emotionally to the characters in this game. Yeah, and actually, I wanted to bring that up um, because I am remembering just how affected I was when certain characters had um, disappeared, should I say? Uh, certain the twins, characters, man. Certain characters met their end. And the sacrifices that certain I mean, look, characters made, this is... it was one of those moments where Final Fantasy became cemented in my mind for being one of those games, types of games, that wasn't afraid to pull at your heartstrings and give you mm -hmm. a little bit of tears. Oh, yeah. It was definitely going for that Spielberg effect. And... Uh... I mean, look, this is the 25-year-old game. If you haven't played it, I mean, I'm not going to I'm not gonna protect people from spoilers for a 25-year-old game. And if you haven't played Final Fantasy IV, shame on you, because you should have. Uh, but the twins, uh, I mean, that was heartbreaking, man. These young kids, and they, they sacrifice themselves to save the grown-ups because they have the ability to do it, and they want the hero, the person that they hated because he attacked their village and killed their friends, after he showed that he was capable of doing good, they were willing to sacrifice themselves for him. I, I had never experienced a story like that in a video game. I don't think I had ever experienced a story like that in any popular fiction at that point in my life. That was jarring. It was, and also I want to bring up the going back to Spoonie Bard, when Anna sacrifices herself for Edward when she... Uh, protects him from the arrows and mm. and Edward survives and she dies and Tella's daughter because she ran off with Edward thinking he was just a bard instead of a prince and she sacrifices her life for him and he gets angry and obviously you Spoonie Bard comes up but what a moment that just blindsides you the first time you're playing it you're just certainly not expecting something like that and just right in your face raw emotion yeah. so layers and tragedy um and it borrows so much from like classical literature uh and now you're 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 making me think of so many things like even in the very beginning of the game the beginning of the game was shocking because you start the game and you're playing as a character who just did this horrible thing Attack this city, kill these people for a crystal for his king. And then you witness Cecil having objections and the king sending him to deliver a package to the village of Mist, which wipes out the village, kills everybody. You kill a little girl's mother. You're confronted by the little girl whose mother you just murdered. Like this thing comes right out of the gate swinging at you emotionally. And, and yeah, you make these connections. And then the next thing that happens is you go into the town of the desert and Cecil's girlfriend is dying of the, the, the desert fever. 
like like it just the hits keep coming in this game man like it goes after you uh and, and, and you can't help but emotionally connect to these characters uh especially yeah there's so there's so much going on there tell his anger his rage his confusion the redemption of cecil is just the big center point of the story and how he becomes you know this, this hero of light from being this uh warrior of darkness you know his left-handed brother Cain, who betrays him. You know, straight-up biblical reference there. Even though you couldn't have a cross in the game, you can have a straight-up biblical reference to to the left-handed brother. Uh, and it just keeps going. Uh, yeah. Uh, the cool thing about it, though, like the cool thing about it, I think, though, with all the tragedy that does happen, it, it does reward the player uh, by giving you like the mega happy ending if you're curious and patient enough to explore all the additional content. And I think that's something that becomes bigger and bigger in Final Fantasy as we go on is how much optional content there is in each game. You know, super bosses and additional dungeons and stuff like that. Extra summons that you can find. So there's a lot of cool things. I think if you, if at the time, I mean, now we all kind of know about it. It's all out there on the internet. But at the time, if you explored and looked for it, you could find some really cool stuff. And maybe that character that you thought had died, maybe he's okay. If you just find him and go bring him whatever item he needs to get better. Like... Oh, I don't know. Say a non-stick frying pan. Yeah, like if you smack a dude on the head with a pan, that's that that saves him from being dead. So that's cool. <laughs> that made me laugh so hard the first time I I read that dialogue. Once you talk to her after uh, Fable Castle, uh, that sequence, and you can go and talk to uh, his wife, and you go you go up to her and she goes, "Oh, don't worry, uh, this is my husband." And he asked, were you okay? And she said, yes, I beat them off with my uh, nonstick frying pan. And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> it yeah, just comes, came out I mean, of nowhere. That, I think that kind of comes back to, I think that kind of comes back to something that at the time we probably weren't too familiar with, but later on we become more familiar with sort of like the anime tropes and that kind of culture. And I think that definitely, I mean, around the Super Nintendo era is I think when we really started to see that happen where, you know, you had the anime culture kind of and the video game culture and they began to sort of merge with one another, which is why a lot of games from that era that came from Japan have a lot of like anime tropes in them. Uh, and, and that's definitely an example of that that we see in Final Fantasy. But luckily, those didn't come across too much uh, at the time that we would be lost by them. Uh, and if they did, Woolsey, you know, made them make sense to us. <laughs> so that's good. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, but so, uh, and, and we, we're talking about all the all this emotional connection we had to the characters in Final Fantasy four, and then five again is one that was skipped here, and uh, maybe it was for the better in, in that regard because I didn't really feel like there was a whole lot of emotional connection to the characters in that one. They weren't really. I don't feel like they were developed that much. Uh, there was the one character, you know, the one character dies, but like then he's immediately replaced by his granddaughter, and it's almost like it never happened. So that one, I didn't feel really was quite as emotional, but uh, we're kind of coming back full circle here now because before, Jared, we talked about Woolsey and the localizations and the censorship, and we talked before about 2 and 3 and why they weren't localized. So knowing everything that we know now about these games and the people involved in them, um, why would you say, Jared, why would you think that Final Fantasy V was not released in North America at this time? You know, I know the reason why, uh, but before we get to that, I absolutely say, I gotta say, I like big butts, and I cannot lie. 
but besides that point, and if you like big butts, <laughs> if you like big butts, you'll love this game because the main character is a big old butts. That's absolutely right. No, the reason why Final Fantasy V, and and I'll just roll with it now, it, that wasn't localized was again we were talking about how uh, the Japanese mentality was towards the North American uh, crowd. And it wasn't released here because we were too dumb to get it. Yeah, to quote to quote Ted Woolsey, uh, it's just not accessible enough to the average gamer. That's from an interview in 1994. Uh, they were thinking about releasing the game as Final Fantasy Extreme and targeting it at the more experienced gamers who loved the complex character building. Uh, apparently, Woolsey had most of the game translated, but they decided not to ship it because the U.S. market was not ready for a second flagship RPG, and they needed something else to get people trained on that style of gaming. So, uh, what what was it that they gave us to train us to be able to understand these so deep and complex RPGs? They gave Wasn't... us Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. Mystic Quest, yeah, I was going to say, wasn't it Mystic Quest, the kindergarten version of Quest. Final Fantasy? So I, I like I liken this to an episode of The Simpsons in which Lisa Simpson meets another girl in school who is gifted, and she's like a genius, and, and Lisa's so elated because she's finally, finally somebody on my level that I can relate to. And I think that's kind of how a lot of us felt about these games when we grew up with them. You know, yes, I get this, this gets me. This tells a story in a way that I that clicks with me that maybe doesn't click with others. This is for me. Yes, finally something for me. And then in the show, then uh, Lisa goes and meets this girl's father, and they're playing a game called Anagrams, where they have to take a a name and construct another phrase with the letters in the name. Of course, Lisa fails at this miserably, whereas her her new friend and her father are very good at it. And so uh, the girl's father kneels down and pats Lisa on the head and says, I have a ball. Perhaps you'd like to bounce it. And I feel like that's what Mystic Quest was for us. That was the ball for us to bounce because we didn't quite understand how to play the complicated Final Fantasy V, which, you know, looking at it now, it wasn't that complicated. It just had a job system like three, but, you know, with a little, with, with a little more of a twist where you could inherit some of the abilities of the jobs you've already learned which is like basically multi-classing in D&D, more or less, but like a really simplified form of multi-classing. It's not that complicated, but, you know, we were way too stupid to understand it. Yeah, and it just, I, I, I've never quite understood that decision in the first place, but I guess they decided that it just wasn't worth the effort, I suppose. Yeah. But I will say this. What they did do was give us quite possibly the most beloved Final Fantasies of all time directly after 2. I can tell you that I know so many of my friends and people that I know that are in love with Final Fantasy 7, but Final Fantasy 6 is their absolute all-time favorite game. And can you blame them? Can you really blame them for being in love with that game? Jared, in my opinion, this is the best game on the Super Nintendo. 
I'm gonna get I'm gonna get I'm gonna get yelled at for saying that. I think this is the best game on the Super Nintendo. And I know, I know a lot of the RPG people are gonna be like, but Chrono Trigger. I'm gonna be like, but Final Fantasy VI. I don't Okay, Chrono Trigger is great. Yeah. Final Fantasy VI is greater. And I will die on that hill. <laughs> it's now, a fantastic see, game. I, I would I would stand up and disagree with you. I think that uh that Chrono Trigger was the gold standard of RPGs. Um and and oh, close boy. second was Final Fantasy VI. However, we're gonna have that's there's an, our next our next debate right there our next debate question for our for our podcast, which is better Final Fantasy VI or Chrono Trigger? Oh man, I mean, the answer is Final Fantasy VI. There is no debate, but you know, <laughs> so 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 you think, <laughs> but I will say, starting out, you fire up the game, and immediately get smacked in the face with this epic thunderstorm and music yes. <laughs> that just I mean uh, uh, yeah like out of absolutely nowhere and you know you got that kind of 2001 space odyssey kind of feel with it you know mm-hmm. not it, it you know um, and just you meet the green haired girl you meet Biggs and Wedge, which was later fixed in the translation, but was completely wrong in the original. Right, Vix. Um, yeah, yep, Vix. you were uh, run around with vapor rub. <laughs> yep, Vix and Wedge. Um, but you meet them. You, you have these robots. It's high technology. It, the game explains that they've progressed from magic and found steam and industrial and all this kind of stuff and then you're introduced to this girl who can cast magic and the story just takes off from there and believe me when i say it takes off from there yeah and there's 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 so much there's there's so much that's changed here and so drastically and in such a positive way I mean, up until now, we've always had this formula in these Final Fantasy games when you look back. They always kind of seem to start the same and, and progress in the same way where you start out and it's like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, high fantasy type of a setting. And like later on in the game, you go to like outer space and like fight robots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry. It seems like that's always been, I'm going to have to edit that out. Uh, but it seems like that's always kind of been the way that uh, these things go. And in this one, we had a completely different setting where it still holds on to the, the core heart of the swords and sorcery motif, but now it's in a world that is almost in like an industrial revolutionary phase of life. Yeah. And then we go the opposite way. Yes. Yep. Because they, the world of ruin happens the ro- and then, the it's, world and then of, it's, it's all kind of gone. Yeah. The world of ruin. And I'll say, gone, I, I will say that also adding something was that, you know, you have these pretty generic ideas for a boss, right? Uh, for a final boss. So you got mm-hmm. chaos being, you know, the embodiment of all the bad negative things in the world. You had, you know, Zeromus in Final Fantasy 2, 4, where he was the, the puppet master pulling the strings. And then right. you get... A little 
jester with one of the most iconic yeah. laughs <laughs> on the Super Nintendo in Kafka. Yeah, you know, you bring up something really, really amazing there, Jared, in that prior to this, we had these sort of generic villains, like you said, and we never really get to know them that much. They just sort of like appear at the end of the game, maybe in five with X-Death a little bit. But these and, and like even like two, it was just kind of like it's Darth Vader, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I never really thought too much about it in that in that respect. But this was the first time we had a villain in the game that we meet him very early in the game. We meet him during Terra's flashback. And then we meet him again in Figaro, you know, 30 minutes later. And we start to get to know this character of Kefka. And maybe two, three hours into the game, we kind of see, you know, even more of who he is. And, and he develops throughout the game. They're developing the villain of the game. You know, just as much as they're developing the heroes. I think this is the first time we ever saw that in a Final Fantasy game. And you gotta say, with Kefka just being such an asshole. I, I mean, I... He just... <laughs> you Yeah, like two, three hours into the game, yeah. You see him poison an entire city and kill everyone. Just because he can. He is the most despicable villain. I have experienced in any work of fiction up to that point in my life. Completely loathsome, horrible, wretched, no conscience, no soul. He wants he wants to finally end the siege at Doma. So he just poisons their water supply. Uh, a war crime by any metric. General Leo even said, telling the soldiers, Kafka's nuts and don't listen to him. The second Leo leaves... Kafka's committing war crimes. And then later on in the game, way later in the game when uh, the Empire pretends that they're surrendering, also that Kefka can go and massacre the espers that come out of the sealed cave. Yes. And the thing Absolutely is... Absolutely despicable. And Literally commits genocide. And it really was. And let's not forget that of these bosses, Kefka was the most darkest side of humanity, but yet still human, in a sense. He was more human than any of the other bosses we had seen to that point. Right. Yeah, because he was a person. He was a general uh, who was experimented on, and then he lost his mind, started dressing up like a clown... And uh, became incredibly cruel and hungry for power. Uh, ambition and, and cruelty, just, just a villain in every imaginable way and completely despicable. I don't know if there's ever been since then in, in, a, in any RPG or any Final Fantasy game a villain quite as despicable as Kefka. This, this man was absolutely the worst but there is Absolutely the worst. there is something that I believe you wanted to bring up uh, that is important to note about Final Fantasy, I believe, 5 and 6, is that they had a new director. That's right. So, well, 5 was directed by Sakaguchi, uh, but that was his last Final Fantasy game that he directed. 6 was directed by Yoshinori Kitase, and Kitase many of you out there may be familiar with as the one who would go on to direct 7 and 8 
Um, so Kitase still to this day is a very prominent figure in the world of Final Fantasy, sort of taking the reins from Sakaguchi. And I think he really was the one that, I mean, Final Fantasy has always been wonderful, but I think Kitase was the one that really brought it into a mainstream uh, appeal. Starting here a little bit, but then, of course, with Seven, we all know how that took off. And Kitase was fundamental in making that happen. So yeah, absolutely, Kitase was the driving force behind this game in many ways. Sakaguchi was still very involved um, as, I think he was like a, like an executive producer. So he was still very involved in the product, but he wasn't the one, you know, doing the work on actually getting it made. He was more, you know, kind of directing um, directing the company of how to proceed with the game uh, from like the business end. He actually did have a launch party for this game. And during that launch party, Sakaguchi gave a speech, and he called this, Final Fantasy VI, the best game in the universe, and I had a really hard time arguing with him. It, it, exactly. Yeah, um, I mean, the, oh, I, I just, there's so many There things. was nothing like this at the time. No, absolutely. There was nothing like this at the time. This was, this broke ground in so many ways, and I don't think it gets enough credit just because like I said before, RPGs weren't really like the flavor of the month of games that we really preferred back then. Like for me, they weren't for you. They were because we were the nerdy kids who were into that. But like it was a small kind of niche uh, genre at the time. Yeah. And with this game being as dark and foreboding as it was, it just was something. Yeah, it definitely has some dark moments. It, it just, it was something that really i i won't say that it was shocking but growing up in that era it was something we had never seen before like you have previously said and to this yeah. day honestly you know the more i think about it to this day in the series i really agree with you when you say there's not been anything quite like it since I think one of the coolest things about Final Fantasy VI is how they tried to make it a game where like every character that you played as could be the protagonist. So there was no like one central protagonist, but we got back into this trend of these kind of uh, pre-created characters. Because back in the beginning, you'll remember, you know, we had the avatars for the player that were kind of like creating a D and D character. They didn't have personalities; they were just whatever you wanted to make them. Then we had these characters now where their character was such a big part of the story, uh, and they were all, all of them and none of them were the hero of the story. Like you could choose who you felt was the hero of the story. It's, it's kind of up to you. And uh, every character has a backstory. There's optional content, especially in the second half of the game, where you learn the full backstory more or less of every character. There are some minor exceptions there. Everyone has, you know, more storytelling and character development and growth to do. Uh, and I just recently played the Pixel Remaster of this game, which is phenomenal, by the way. Uh, I think you were playing it also, Jared. Uh, yep. Where I got to experience that experience that again recently. Can I just take a moment and, and stray off just a little bit uh, and, and bring up the one main reason in my mind you absolutely have to play Pixel Remaster 6? It, it all boils down to two words. Opera, house. The Opera House sequence is amazing in the Pixel Remaster. If you haven't played the Pixel Remaster, you should play it just for the Opera House sequence alone. They enhanced that to a point that I was a little worried about it 
um, because I'm like, oh, you can't mess with that. You know, like that's, I mean, we grew up with that. It's one of those things where when you mess with it, people are going to be uncomfortable, not be comfortable with that. But they messed with it in all the right ways. It's in like the HD 2D and there's all different camera angles. They re-recorded the music and they actually have real voiced vocals now. It, it, it Which, was, I mean, incredible. I did kind of miss the yeah from the original game yeah but it was nice uh it was nice no it was it was incredibly well done the opera house sequence i mean everything was really well done in the um in the pixel remaster but that in particular was just chef's kiss out of this world just incredible but going incredible going back a little bit to each character's backstory and and what really impressed me at the time when i played it and still impresses me to this day is to, to your credit and to your point that you were making about the whole um, anyone could be the hero, how many games can you think of in that you've ever played where you had complete and total control of how you wanted the story to turn out with your character group, with your character set? What I'm trying to get at here is I don't recall a time, past or present, where you could take a entire list of characters and say, I like this one better, or hey, I like this one better, or hey, I like this one, and say, okay, they're the hero. They're the, they're the, the centralized focus. And then the next time you play the game, well, we did that one already, so let's play as this one. And it may have been experimental at the time, but boy, oh boy, did it work. Yeah, uh, I think it was really mind-blowing for everybody, anybody playing it. That first sequence after you go down the Leet River and uh, the party gets separated and you have three separate scenarios. And I remember Nintendo Power making a big deal out of this. Three separate scenarios to choose from. And you do have to eventually, you do have to play all three of them, but you can choose whichever order you would like. And you have three different stories being told at the same time, and they all kind of come back together. And that's not the first time, that's not the last time that you have something like that in the game, because there are like several points in the game where you have to split your group up, you know, for like the battle in the cave with the Mughals, the battle with Kafka in the snowfield. Uh, then there's the Phoenix cave and, and uh, Kafka's uh, tower. All these times you have all your characters split up into different groups. It's something that I don't think I'd ever seen anything quite like that before. Uh, it was really incredible. It also gave you a reason and a motivation to want to go through all the side content and get all the characters back in your group in the second half of the game. And you want to have everybody in the party at some point so that everyone levels up and learns more spells. Uh, and there's also so much cool like hidden stuff in that game. Like, there are so many, like, weapon and item combinations and things that uh, have unexpected or extreme results. And they're kind of little Easter eggs and secrets for the player to uncover or figure out. Like, if you have uh, Setzer in your group, Setzer's, like, pretty useless for most of the game. I mean, you can teach him magic like anybody else, and you can use the Espers to help him help his stats grow in a certain way if you want. But his abilities aren't that useful, his weapons aren't that strong. But at the end of the game, he gets the fixed dice... And if you give them the fixed dice and uh, whatever they decided to call the offering in the new version, 
that allows you to attack four times in one turn. Setzer can do up to 9,999 damage four times because he doesn't get a penalty. Like little things like that. Or, you know, some of uh, some of Locke's weapons, he can throw them randomly. Um, there are limit breaks in this game, which a lot of people don't know. But uh, it's not like a limit meter like they had in 7. They're hidden. They're secret. So you only see them if you happen to accidentally unlock them by letting your character get low enough on HP and then use the attack command. And just all kinds of different sorts of... Uh, the relics are amazing because the relics all have different effects. You can combine them in different ways. There's the Ragnarok, the Cursed Shield... Uh, there's the Colosseum where you can discover all kinds of items that you didn't even know were in the game. There are hidden items. There are items that can only be stolen from certain enemies. There are Strago's blue magic spells that can only be learned from certain enemies. There's Gao's rages. Like, there's so many things in this game. So, so deep. Uh, so much to discover. So much to play around with. There are enemies that you may never encounter in a normal playthrough unless you go to the certain areas. There's a there's a, a boss in the world uh, not a, not a boss it's an enemy in the world of balance that if you didn't go looking for him you would never find him. It's just some really cool stuff, really cool stuff. Uh, and I always felt like one thing, Jared, that made this game a little bit weak was that like every character could learn every magic spell. I I, I always kind of disliked that because it cancels out the limitations on what your characters are capable of from you know a gameplay perspective. But then most of the characters have such strong special abilities that, like, the magic's not really that consequential to them. So, you know, there's a little bit more of like a, you know, you play it how you want kind of thing there. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I, I, I've gone off on a tangent there. Sorry. I I've, I got really excited. I got excited. I got too excited. I talked too much. Yeah, no. I talk now, Jared. Tell, well, tell people things. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. But I, I'll be honest with you, though. Uh, how can you not get excited about how good Final Fantasy VI is? How can you not get excited about, about, I mean, you, you, I, (laughs) I can't even come up with the proper words to say. I, I, I love Final Fantasy VII. I like this game better. You know, I, I have to agree. That's how much I like this game. um, That's how much I love this game. We will get to Final Fantasy VII in our next episode, but. But not tonight. Not tonight, no. (laughs) But. Importantly, though, Final Fantasy VI is one of those games that you play it once and it just sticks with you for a lifetime. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, that one, the the emotional connections on on the emotional connections on on this game were were massive too. I mean, we talked about Final Fantasy IV and the emotional connections. We we watch a man say goodbye to the woman he loves that he thought was 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 dead that's been preserved in a coma state for years and we watch him grieve for her we see another man uh explore ruins to get the the airship of his you know of his ex-lover who died we watch a man lose his wife and child and watch their spirits walk away on a phantom train. The emotional connections are massive. The first character that we meet and get to know has been taken advantage of in a way that is unfathomable, unfathomable and unconscionable. We watch a former general be betrayed by the people that she trusted. We, we watch the, the, the right bastard commit a massacre 
of a peaceful people who were just trying to coexist in our world. We watch the story of a boy thrown into the wilderness by a father who lost his mind. We see the redemption of an assassin and his long-lost estranged daughter. I mean, this is very heavy on the emotional content. Absolutely. And, and, and it, one and it's thing, absolutely beautiful. One thing that, uh, that I think that is important to mention here that I believe you missed was you see that same general who was betrayed watch Sid die. Only, only if you're really bad at catching fish. You can only save if him. you can save him, but you can save him. But exactly, but, but you might not. But you might, but you not. might not. But you might not. <laughs> so that's there. Well, even even that sequence, even if he does survive, that whole sequence was I I can remember very vividly when I first experienced that sequence. You know, on the Super Nintendo as a kid. You know, it was like a Saturday night, you know, um, and I just remember the feeling of isolation and hopelessness, despair that you could commiserate with Celie's feeling like you, you really felt and not knowing how what was going to happen next, because nowadays we all we all we know what's going to happen next. So it's not as uh, it's not as real for us. But then I remember the distinct feeling. Uh, and really having a lot of empathy for Celia's in her situation. Most definitely. Most definitely. It was tragic and sad, and my my heart was my heart was breaking for her. It really was. In more happy news, you do (laughs) you do eventually destroy Kafka, save the world, as most Final Fantasy games uh, do. And the ending is, the ending is awesome. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the ending of four was really great, but then the ending of this one is it has the cool the book with the pages flipping, and the music is beautiful, the coloring is beautiful, and they gives you a nice little wrap up of everyone's story. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful ending, and it is a fantastic reward for finishing. And that concludes our episode of. Final Fantasy Retrospective, Final Fantasy 1 through 6. Thank you for joining us. And on the next episode, my fellow lords and ladies, we will be going into our second part of the Final Fantasy Retrospective. We are going to be discussing Final Fantasy 7 through 9 during the PlayStation era. I want to thank you for joining us today. You can find us on Facebook.com slash The Console Kingdom on Twitter at TCK Podcast Zero One, on Discord at the Console Kingdom Podcast, and on YouTube at the Console Kingdom. Thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Game on, my friends. Game on.